Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. When Trisha and I were getting planning our wedding and uh, making the the guest list, we lived in Southern California. So we sent an invitation to then President Ronald and Nancy Reagan. Yeah, you had a ranch in Southern California, so you never know. Don't know unless you try, right? We got a nice card back saying, congratulations on your wedding. Sorry, Nancy and I will not be able to make it. And uh, We wish you all the luck. And it was signed by them. It's really, we still have it in a, in a book somewhere. So it was that was pretty cool. Um, then we kind of panicked. What if he did show up? We were going to have enough appetizers for them and 100 Secret Service people. So. I did see President Reagan about six months after we got married. We were living in Las Vegas. I was a youth pastor there. But uh, being a youth pastor didn't pay the bills, so I worked for an excavator digging ditches. And we were working on, me and one other guy, we were working on the side of this road. Not a very busy road in, there in Vegas. We were digging a big hole for a cement vault to go in where the, all the electrical lines come in and, and meet and split off into different directions. And, and we kept noticing police cars driving up and down the street. We thought, that's weird, but it's Las Vegas. So anything could be happening. Then we'd see helicopters flying by, back and forth, over the street. Again, it's weird, but it's Las Vegas. So, And then two motorcycle cops pulled up to us and said, what are you guys doing? <laughs> they said, we're digging a hole to put this big vault in. He said about, they said about five minutes you have to go to the other side of the street and stand over there, but don't move from there until somebody tells you it's okay. Okay. It's Las Vegas. Why? They said, because the president's coming down the street here in just a few minutes. Went, okay. And we went stood on the side of the road where we were told to, and no one else is on the road. There's not another single person on this road, as far as you can see, either direction. And there's no cars. And then here comes the presidential motorcade. And since we're the only ones there, I waved at him, and he waved back. <laughs> and continue on the way. And that's the closest I've ever been to a sitting president. There are ways to meet the president. I discovered there are ways to meet it. Here's some ways that you can meet the president. If you want to meet the president... You can get elected to Congress. You can become a professional athlete and either win a gold medal at the Olympics or win a national champion in football, baseball, or basketball. And you get to meet the president. You can become an Academy Award-winning actor and then host $10,000 per plate dinners as a fundraiser for his re-election campaign. You get to meet the president. You can join the military, perform a, a, an extreme act of bravery, and be awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor. And you can meet the president. Uh, you can go to every place the president is scheduled to be and just hope that you might get a chance to talk to him and shake his hand or he'll stop and talk to you. Here's some things, ways you should not try to meet the president. You should not run to the, or knock on the White House door and demand to see him. Uh, you should not send a threatening letter claiming something bad will happen if he doesn't meet with you. And you should not uh, wait for his motorcade to stop, and when he gets out, run to him as fast as you can, waving your arms, saying, Mr. President, Mr. President! That's probably not a good idea. The odds that any of us will ever get a sit-down conversation with the President of the United States are extremely rare. There are approximately 333 million people in the United States. If the President spent one minute with each of them, it would take 633.5 years. <laughs> 
nonstop. Odds are you're not going to meet the president. Despite my parents trying to tell me to keep my elbows off the table so I wouldn't do that when I was invited to dinner at the president's house. (laughs) But do you know that you can meet a king no trouble at all? That you can have a relationship with the king, and not just any king, the king of kings. Anytime. You can have a conversation with him. Anyone who comes to him will meet him. And he's available to meet with you anytime, not a day. The birth of Jesus shows us that he was accessible to anyone who would come to him. The record of Jesus' birth in Luke chapter 2 reveals for us the extreme contrast between two rulers. One was the ruler of an empire. The other was the ruler of, well, everything. One saw himself as superior to everyone else. One actually was superior to everyone else, but humbled himself so as to be accessible to anyone who wanted to see him. We'll look at the distinction between the emperor's declaration and the king's humility. We'll start with the emperor's declaration. I'll read the first three verses, and then we'll go back and unpack them. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Now, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited world. And uh, this was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Little doubt that the census that Caesar Augustus ordered was for the purpose of taxation, uh, and and the, the empire became extremely wealthy during this period of time. Luke doesn't mention Caesar Augustus merely to give us a timeline of when things were happening, although it does that for us. There's a much bigger point. At the time of the birth of Christ, Caesar Augustus was a little more than halfway through his 40-year reign, and he is the first emperor of the Roman Empire. He was born Gaius Octavius. He's the grand-nephew of Julius Caesar. But Julius Caesar had no children, so he adopted Gaius to be his son and name him as his heir. Julius Caesar was killed when Octavius was out of the country. Octavius was 19 years old at the time, and when he got back uh, into the country, he felt like it was his duty to avenge the death of Caesar. So he joined with Mark Antony, and they hunted down Brutus and his associates, and they killed them all didn't take long for there to be a power struggle between uh, Octavius and Mark Antony. So Octavius gathered an army and they went after Mark Antony and and killed him and Cleopatra in the Battle of Actium in 27 BC. And at that point is when his rule began. He lasted until his death in AD 14. Octavius would then take the name of Augustus Caesar. Augustus means the increaser or the reverenced. He would dramatically expand the Roman kingdom. In fact, it was first called the Roman Empire under uh, Caesar Augustus, making him the first to hold the title of Roman Emperor. It flourished, as I mentioned, from all the taxes that were being collected throughout the empire. It became very wealthy. 
And he was revered by the Roman citizens. He attended a play, and in the play, an actor spoke the line, quote, O just and gracious Lord, end quote. At that, the entire audience stood up, turned toward Augustus, and began to applaud, assuming that the line was meant for him. Multiple cities were built or renamed Caesarea in his honor. The Roman Senate gave him the title, quote, Father of his Country. Our month, August, was originally called Sextilis because it was the sixth month on the Roman cal- uh, calendar, but to honor himself and to commemorate his defeat of Mark Antony and Cleopatra, he had the name, the month's name changed to August. An inscription known as the Pyrene calendar, dating back to 9 BC, declares Augustus was sent, quote, as the savior, both of us and of our descendants, end quote. He went on to call his birth, quote, the good news for the world, end quote, using the word euangelion, which is the New Testament word for gospel. Another inscription now in the British Museum refers to Augustus as, quote, a savior of the common folk, end quote. Augustus ruled the known world, and when he spoke, people 1,400 miles away did exactly what he said they should do. Historians tell us that Augustus was the wealthiest man alive at his time, and even as they adjust for inflation, he is still in the top five wealthiest people to ever have lived. With dollars adjusted for inflation for our day, it is estimated that Caesar Augustus had a net worth of $4.6 trillion. To give you an idea, Solomon, who was the wealthiest man, the wealthiest king ever in Israel, at his height adjusted for inflation, his worth was $2.2 trillion, So half of what Augustus's was. As he was about to die, Augustus said, I have found Rome in clay, I leave it to you in marble. And shortly after his death, the Roman Senate declared Augustus to be a god. So Augustus in his lifetime was referred to as Savior, as Lord. His birth was referred to as the Gospel, and he was called a god after his death. Luke continues to further define the timeline by telling us it was the census was taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria, which this occasion was probably about 4 B.C., and then tells us everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Apparently that was the best way to keep track of the people. Cities would keep uh, very good records of who was born in that city, who was a citizen of that city. So in order to check off everybody that was to be taxed, Caesar Augustus said everybody has to go back to the city of their birth, and register there, and they can pay their taxes at that point. Augustus had reached the top of human admiration and success. So at the time of Christ, at the time of his birth, you ask the average citizen, what is it to be a powerful, influential, wealthy, admired, revered man? They would have all thought of Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus was at that time the most revered man on the planet. He was the wealthiest, the most successful, most admired, most influential person. By way of great contrast, Jesus is 
very different. Look at verses 4 and 5. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. Under the decree of Augustus, Joseph, a young carpenter from a podunk town named Nazareth up in the hillside in northern Israel, up in the Galilee region, he would have to travel with his very pregnant wife some 70 miles to Bethlehem. They were just engaged at this time, but engagement at that period in time was legally binding. In order to get out of an engagement, you'd have to have a bill of divorce. So it was it was tantamount to our marriage, but there was a two-part. Uh, there was the engagement, and then there was the wedding ceremony itself. And she's expecting a child, and it's going to be a, a, a very difficult trip. They would have first descended out of Nazareth, up in the hillside there. It sat about 1,200, I'm sorry, about 1,600 feet above sea level. They would travel south down into the, the Jezreel Valley. They would turn east as they walked through that valley. They would go through the Herod Valley, down into the Jordan Rift Valley. By the time they got to the Jordan Rift Valley, about 20 miles away, they were now at minus 800 feet below sea level. So they traveled 2,400 feet, descended 2,400 feet in that 20 miles. They would continue south down the Jordan Rift Valley, being the easiest trek down there, and the a water source all along the way. They'd take them about another 40 miles down that Jordan Rift Valley. They would get to Jericho, and from Jericho, it was just a 12-mile walk to Bethlehem. A 12-mile walk uphill, barefooted in the snow. Jericho sits about 800 feet below sea level. Bethlehem sits 3,100 feet higher than that. And Mary is in the last weeks of her pregnancy. I don't know, do you feel more sorry for Mary or for Joseph at this point? They make it up that 12 miles up that mountain. In what I think is a poke at man's high opinion of himself and a a wink to God's sovereign sense of humor. God has the most powerful ruler in the world at that moment in time to make a decree that everybody is supposed to go back to their hometown to be registered for the census, which is actually a fulfillment of a prophecy given seven centuries earlier. 700 years earlier, God spoke through Micah the prophet, Micah 5.2, and said, But as for you, Bethlehem Ephratah, Too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth from me to be ruler in Israel. His going forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. God in his sovereign control made the most powerful man in the world make a decree that all it did was fulfill the prophecy that God had declared 700 years earlier. At this moment in time, the most powerful man in the world is nothing but a pawn in God's plan. He turns Caesar Augustus whatever direction he wanted him to go. Verses 6 and 7 says, And while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. 
She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. This is the first Christmas. This is when Jesus is born on this earth. It's an amazing day. When he was born, Mary, young mother, didn't have all the things that we now consider to be essentials, necessary for the birth of a baby. She didn't have a two-week supply of diapers. She didn't have one of those special buckets that you stick the dirty diapers in that don't that keep the smell in there so you don't stink up the barn. She didn't have one of those little ball sucky things to stuck the snot out. She didn't have a baby monitor to keep track of every noise and movement that baby Jesus made. She didn't have a selection of essential oils. I don't know how she did it. She didn't have a diffuser humidifier, dehumidifier. She didn't have a nice selection of newborn clothes that she could dress him up in and take a picture of each one. She didn't have a pretty embroidered bag to hold it all in with a picture of his great-great-grandfather Noah. She didn't have a crib to lay him in. But she did have some clean cloths to wrap him in, some clean straw to put in a feeding trough that she could lay him in for a bed. When she delivered him, there was no one to take him and weigh him or to measure him or to take a print of his tiny little foot. And the only one available to mark the time of day when he was born was her and Joseph. Jesus didn't have all the things that modern people think they need to have a baby. In fact, he didn't have all the things that the people in that time thought you needed to have in order to have a baby. And it's the humble nature of his birth that makes him approachable for all mankind, gives all mankind hope. Jesus born in the way he was makes it possible for us to approach the king of kings. Listen, if he'd been born in a palace or royalty that he would be have limited access to anybody. Not just anybody could go to a palace and say, hey, I'm here to see the baby. But by being born in such an impoverished conditions, Jesus is accessible to the common man. He can be approached by the poor people, and he was as the shepherds came to see him. And shepherds are the outcasts of society. They're poor. They're considered unclean by the nature of their work. And then later, he's visited by wealthy men, the wise men from the east, as they bring him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And just in those first two years of his life, Jesus is showing that he's accessible to anybody, rich and poor alike. It doesn't matter. Saint and sinner, they're all welcome. This is, as Jesus is born, and you're looking at the social ladder, he's on the bottom rung. There's no way that anybody throughout his life would be ever ever be afraid to approach Jesus. No one would be intimidated by him, by his status, by his wealth. No one would be afraid to approach him, to talk to him, to touch him. And that's all by design. God wanted his son to be accessible to everybody. The poor could come to him, the wretched, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the widows, the sinners, the suffering, the disease. It didn't matter who they were. They could all come to him. And throughout his life, we see that rich young people coming to him, very poor people, sick, diseased, dying. 
He showed them compassion. And he fellowshiped with them. He talked with them and he met their needs. Something the religious elite would never do. In fact, they criticized Jesus for doing that, saying things like, if Jesus had known what what kind of person this was, he would never allow them to touch him. If he knew what kind of woman this was that was washing his feet, he would never allow it. If he knew that this man was a tax collector, he would never go to his house for dinner. That Jesus came in such a way to make himself accessible to everybody. The humility of the king of kings is further accentuated when we read there was no room for them in the inn. I'm sure it was pretty inconvenient at that time to give birth in a stable and use a feeding trough as a bed. But it really serves as a foreshadow of things to come. There was no room for for him at his birth and he slept in a borrowed barn. There was no room for him at his death and he was buried in a borrowed tomb. And throughout his ministry and after his resurrection, it's been proven that there's no room for him in the hearts of many people. There's no room in their hearts for his commands. He commands them to repent of their sin. There's no room. As he commands them to self-denial, there's no room for them to take up their own cross, to deny themselves. There's no room for the command to love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love their neighbor as themselves. Though they amazed at his miracles and they could not dispute his teaching, they hated his challenge to their own self-authority and to their own self-righteousness, their own pride. Jesus would tell them to die to themselves and, and they couldn't wrap their brain around that. Why would I die to self? Why would I give up my own desires, my own pride? It's the same today. Like the scribes and the Pharisees of old, most people want to worship a God of their own creation. They want to determine what that God will accept and what He won't accept, what He rejects and what He doesn't reject, what He overlooks and what He doesn't overlook. And interestingly enough, it happens to be the same things that they accept and reject and Overlook. There's no room for the sovereignty of the Lord in their lives. They don't want Jesus to have control of every area of their life. They don't mind being amazed by His power, and they certainly can't argue with His teaching, but they refuse to give the authority of Jesus, give their life to His authority. They don't want Jesus digging around in their life. If if they could, they would just isolate Him. And many Christians do the same thing. They want to isolate Jesus to this room called religion. And maybe they'll take Him out for a couple hours on a Sunday to stretch His legs, and then it's right back in the room. They close the door and lock it. They don't want Jesus rummaging around in their work room or their leisure room or their decision room or their pride room or their finance room or their thought room or their attitude room or their marriage room or any other room in their life. They just want Jesus to mind his own business. They want him to stay in that room and, hey, you just stay there and if we need you, we know where you are and we'll just come get you. 
Make no mistake that while the humble nature of the birth of Jesus makes Him accessible to anyone who will come, He is still Sovereign Lord. He is still the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He still has all authority. And He has every bit of authority to command us. Though He is the humble servant when He came to this earth, He is still King. And He has all the authority He needs to tell us what to do. And we must surrender every aspect of our life to His sovereign rule. The birth in the Bethlehem staple was not the beginning of the humility of Jesus. That actually begins in heaven. The Christmas story actually begins in heaven before God even created the heavens and the earth when the Father and the Son agreed that when the time came, Jesus would put on human flesh and come to this earth. That He would humble Himself. That Jesus would voluntarily take and limit his the, the exercise of His divine attributes. That He would submit to the will of the Father and only do what the will of the Father was and not seek His own will at all. That He would come and to seek and to save the lost. That He would put on human flesh. Humble Himself. Jesus would descend as it were a divine ladder reaching from heaven to the grave. The top rung of the ladder is in heaven where Jesus is from eternity past and He enjoys the glory of heaven and He's worshipped and served by angels and whatever He desires, whatever He says is done exactly how He wants. And He is worshipped along with God the Father, being equal with God the Father, second man and the second person of the Trinity. And then Jesus begins to descend the ladder. It requires Him to put on human flesh. And not just any flesh, not just any man, but a servant. This is the middle rung. He's on earth. And He would tell the crowds and His disciples on several occasions that I did not come to, to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. And then next to last rung, he stands at the cross where he's offered up as a sacrifice for our sins, for all who believe. And while hanging on that cross, the sky turns black and the Father turns his back in some way that we don't completely understand. Their, their fellowship is divided in some way. And Jesus cries out from the depths of his soul, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he dies. And he reaches the bottom rung of the ladder as he's wrapped in cloths again. But this time as a dead man put in a tomb. It's impossible for us to grasp that level of humility. Because we can't grasp the level of glory that he experienced, we certainly can't grasp the level of humility that it took for God to put on human flesh and come and die for people like you and me. To try to wrap your brain around it a little bit, it'd be like you deciding that you were going to become a gnat to die for other gnats. And who in their right mind would die for a gnat? Gnats are worthless. All they seem to do is hover at about face level. <laughs> right over the path. When you're having a conversation. 
For Jesus to die, to put on human flesh and die on a cross is so extreme from being the divine God that He is to becoming a created being, to putting on created flesh, is such a contrast. It wouldn't be surprising for angels to to have thought to themselves, if possible, why in the world would He go die for them? Why would He put on human flesh and die for those people? Doesn't He see what they do? Jesus didn't come to live in a marble palace. He didn't have a team of people that tried to screen everybody that wanted to come to Him. Though the disciples tried on a few occasions. Remember, little kids were coming to Jesus. Parents were sending their kids, go go, go, t- see if you can touch Jesus. Go talk to Jesus. And the disciples were you know, like goalies going, get out of here. You, know, no, you can't come here, kid. And Jesus stopped them and said, no, hey, let them come. Because such is the kingdom of God. He let the kids come in and he would hold them and he talked to them, minister to them. And there's another occasion where there's a couple of blind men sitting on the side of the road and they hear the commotion coming and they ask somebody, what's going on? They say, Jesus is coming. So they immediately begin to cry out for Jesus to stop and, and, and help them and, and, and disciples, followers of Jesus are trying to shut them up. Hey, stop. You don't, you're, you're not worthy. You don't get to see him. We're, we're too busy for you. Jesus obviously heard the commotion and he stops and he heals the blind men. Because Jesus wasn't trying to keep people from him, he was trying to get to the people. He was trying to bring people to him and any people. Whether it was a rich young ruler who wasn't sure about what was important in his life or it was a beggar or a demon-possessed maniac. Jesus was accessible to all who would come to Him. I've really started to become fond of different types of nativity scenes. When I've traveled now, uh, among the things I, souvenirs I try to look for is anything that's a nativity scene uh, that I can pick up and I can get at home. I've got one from Honduras. i got some from Israel and other places. But the best one I've ever seen, my favorite so far, is an entire Bethlehem village. Got all the shops, the homes, the merchants. You see people in the streets, children playing, people doing their work, the hustle and bustle of the little city, and the little roads going all around. And then off to the side, almost unnoticeable, there's a stable. And in that stable is Mary and Joseph and Jesus laying in that manger. And virtually no one in the town notices And I believe that's what it was really like. You look at that scene and you have to look for the manger because you don't, it doesn't jump off the page at you. It doesn't jump off the scene. There could scarcely be a bigger contrast in the world at the time of Christ than that between Caesar Augustus and Jesus. God came into the world as a man at a time when the world viewed man as a god. And Luke subtly shows us the difference between the world's idea of greatness and God's idea of greatness. 
Augustus was wealthy, powerful, revered, admired, and feared. Everyone knew who he was, and when he spoke, people listened. Jesus was born in a small town to poor parents, and few would even notice he had come into this earth. He was humble from his birth, and he took upon himself the form of a servant. Augustus had multiple people serving his every whim. Jesus came to serve the multitudes. Augustus sits in his marble palace in Rome. Jesus lays in a feeding trough in Bethlehem. It's hard to find two more opposite rulers. So it's no wonder that Jesus didn't fit Israel's idea of a king. Yet he is the king. Not just any king. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And at his name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That includes Caesar Augustus. He's not only the humble king, but he's the savior of all who believe. And anybody can come to him. All who believe are welcome. And he said, all who come to me I will receive and I will not cast out any of them. The White House receives about a 100 written requests per day to meet the president. Maybe less now. Precious few people will ever get that opportunity. But anyone can come and meet the king and have a relationship with him. All you have to do is ask. Turn from your sin. Confess him as Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. He's already invited you. You don't have to write a letter asking to come. He's written one to you and already inviting you. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all you who are, are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. John seven thirty seven. Jesus stood and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The birth of Jesus Christ shows that he is accessible to anyone who will come to him. And if you're out here today and you don't know Christ, now's the time. Come to Jesus Christ today and receive the greatest gift ever offered to man. And as Samuel said during the music, you can see any one of us will be happy to help you unwrap that present and understand the gospel. You're not too good to see Jesus and you're not too bad to get in to see Jesus. He's humble and merciful, and gracious, and waiting to offer all of that to you, if you'll come by faith. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that we can have access to your Son, Jesus. Father, it's an amazing thing that you would love us enough to send your Son to die for us. It's an amazing thing, Jesus, that you would die in our place taking our sin upon Yourself and giving us Your righteousness. Father, what a great gift. Any gift we could give to anybody else or we could receive from any other human being pales in comparison to that gift. And Father, my prayer is as we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ in just a a few days, 
Father, during all the hustle and bustle of the day, during the celebration and the meals and the gift wrap and the presents, Father, may we never forget, may we stop and remember the greatest gift that is given to us is Jesus Christ. Because of His humble birth, we can come to Him and have life. Father, may You be gracious. If there's anyone here that doesn't know You as Lord, may they receive the gift of salvation today. They may be saved. Father, we thank You for Your greatest gift to us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.